Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together tonight in the middle of the week and just pause for a time of reflection on your word. And Lord, I pray as we continue to study the important truths about the doctrine of salvation that you would remind us anew of just the incredible nature of your grace, your amazing, wonderful, matchless grace. Help us to understand that that grace is totally and absolutely free. And as a response to that grace, help us to seek to please you, living grateful lives and lives in obedience to you. And Lord, we pray tonight as we continue this study that you give us wisdom and understanding and just pray for an edifying time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what is Calvinism? Is it biblical? Uh, we Last week we finished up the third point of five-point Calvinism, limited atonement. We actually did that in one session because it's kind of a slam dunk. You know, it's really pretty clear the easiest uh, point of Calvinism to refute. And uh, so if you've not watched that, I encourage you to watch it. But as we uh, get going tonight, let me mention a couple of resources new this week. Every week we do two or three different resources. Yesterday I did a podcast about 45 minutes on the rapture versus the second coming. What's the difference? And so if you've not uh, listened to that, I encourage you to go back and check that out. Um, an update, by the way, we've been praying for Curtis Chamberlain with Curtis Christian Underground News Network. Uh, he is still on the mend, but his doctor has said he really needs to cut back to once a month. Uh, so he's been doing three a week podcasts. So uh, he let me know that we're going to be restructuring. They're going to be restructuring their schedule, and uh, you know I'm going to be on uh, at least monthly or so. But in the meantime, uh, you know, as the Lord has kind of directed with this unexpected change uh, at the Christian Underground News Network over the last couple of weeks with Curtis being sick, I've just been doing my own podcast and really enjoying it. It's just a teaching, nothing fancy, not you know, no theme music or you know, ads and all that. Just me kind of speaking about what's on my heart uh, biblically. And so yesterday that was what's the difference between the rapture and the second coming. And I'll continue to do these uh, every Tuesday. And then very hot off the press, uh, just before I left to come up here, I wrote an article uh, called Satan's Counterfeits. It's a devotional article, real short. Uh, you know, I do one a week generally. Um, and I encourage you to check that out. It's on the highlight banner at notbyworks.org. And uh, it was prompted by a passage in Proverbs uh, 3 today that I was reading. And in conjunction with a, a conversation I had Sunday with someone after church or after the Bible study hour, I can't remember. But Proverbs 3 verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. In other words, the more you follow God's word and follow his principles and live life according to God's word, the more likely you are to live a long life. Um, but then verse 3 was what caught my eye. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. And uh, so I got to thinking about how in the end times, uh, Satan's going to try to mimic everything as he always is. He's the great counterfeiter um, that God is doing. But especially in the end times, the same way that God's people in uh, old times in the Old Testament, would bind literally the Old Testament Torah to their neck and to their uh, hands, he's going to require people during the tribulation period to take the mark of the beast on their neck and their hands. And so that just got my wheels turning. And so I talked about several ways that Satan is counterfeiting uh, God leading up ultimately to the counterfeit trinity with Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. So you can check that out uh, at notbyworks.org. 
And uh, don't forget about the Spirit of the Antichrist book. Do you guys have that? If not, we have copies out here. Okay, great. We'll pick that up if you didn't have it. Uh, and those of you that are watching online, you can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org and read the preface and the table of contents. I encourage you to check that out. Very important uh, information uh, in there. So uh, the five points of Calvinism, as you know, are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. We've worked our way in the previous seven sessions through the first three of those. And now we come to really the two most troubling of all of the five points, at least in, in, in my perspective. Um, you know, total depravity, Calvinists teach is total inability. You, have, you do not have the ability to believe the gospel. You couldn't believe it if you wanted to. God has to do it for you. They call it total inability. That's going to play into our discussion tonight of irresistible grace. But that's total depravity. It's really total inability. Dead men can't believe is their mantra. And they think that because we're born spiritually dead, it means we ha do not have the capacity to believe, which we demonstrated as we went through that. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. It teaches we're dead, sure enough, but dead just means separated from a holy God. And in fact, we can believe the gospel, which is the one thing we must do to have eternal life. That leads me to number two, unconditional election. The problem with their view of unconditional election is that there is one condition mentioned repeatedly that you must do if you want to go to heaven, and that is believe the gospel. So faith is a condition. Faith is the instrumental cause of eternal life. Uh, so while we don't really, or at least I don't really uh, differ with them on our understanding of election, we certainly believe the Bible teaches individual election. To say that our eternal salvation and all of these five points of Calvinism relate to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, to say that it's unconditional is simply not true. There is one condition. And then limited atonement, of course, because you don't have the capacity to believe and uh, you, there's nothing you can do to be saved. God does it all. Therefore, they teach that Christ only died for the elect and that his death on the cross is actually what pr procures salvation, not faith, but the atoning work of Christ. And so they call it limited atonement that Christ, or sometimes you'll hear it called particular redemption. He only died for the elect. Uh, and uh, he did not die for the sins of the whole world. And we, you know, I think very adequately demonstrated that Scripture doesn't teach that uh, last week. And so now we come to the I in TULIP, irresistible uh, grace. And uh, the doctrine of irresistible grace, by the way, all of these, uh, everything we're talking about is discussed in much greater detail in uh, getting the gospel wrong. Um, but as we think about uh, irresistible grace. Let me kind of just tell you what they, how they define it, and then uh, we'll look at some of their own teachings in their own words, and then we're going to, of course, like we always do, go to what does the Bible say. Um, so, irresistible grace teaches that you cannot resist God's salvation. That if you are meant to be saved, grace will overpower you and force you to believe. Um, God's grace simply cannot be resisted by man. Man cannot believe in Christ until after he's born again. God must make you spiritually alive. And then again, you know, you will express faith, but it will be involuntary. Uh, so remember, Calvinism is a closed-loop system, a zero-sum game. Uh, it's a man-made theological system that builds a case. It starts with man is completely unable to believe the gospel, 
Secondly, God chose those who he would save in eternity past, uh, unconditionally, they have nothing to do with it. Third, Christ died to purchase and save only those whom God elected. And then fourth, God regenerates the elect without their knowledge or participation. And then those whom he chose and regenerated will involuntarily or non-voluntarily express faith in Christ. They cannot help it. They are compelled uh, to do so. So before we dive into what they say, I want to bring up another email. Very gracious email. Really appreciated the tone and tenor of this uh, person's uh, comments. Um, And I responded to them in detail. uh, And I mentioned that I was going to possibly bring out a couple of their points. But this person says that uh, they were a staunch advocate of Calvinism for a long time, but they eventually found the liberating truth of God's free grace. And then this is the next statement that I want to hone in on. He said, Calvinism, or they said, Calvinism doesn't teach that faith is an involuntary reaction. Now what he's saying is, if if you were to go on and read the rest of the email, is that Calvinists wouldn't describe it that way. And so that prompted me to to want to clarify. They definitely don't like the word force. But I'm going to demonstrate tonight, under this, in their own words of irresistible grace, that that's exactly the textbook definition of forcing someone to do something. If you are compelled to do something beyond your choice and that you cannot resist, it's not possible to resist, and you absolutely will do it no matter what, that's what force is. In fact, I would challenge you, challenge anyone to try to define what it means to force someone without using words like involuntary, non-voluntary, irresistible, compelling, compel, compulsion. I mean, those all, all, that's what those words mean. And so the illustration that I used when I was uh, responding to this uh, listener is it's kind of like pro-abortion advocates would never call themselves pro-murder, right? But but what are the facts of the matter, right? If an unborn life is life, which we believe the Bible teaches life begins at conception, and you take an innocent life, that's murder. So of course they may not like, like that, but what are the facts of the matter? And Calvinists like to, uh, you know, play word games but they always at the end come back to you have no choice. God makes you do this. And so that brings me to a, uh, a short devotional by, uh, who is this again, Sproul? The one you gave me? Is it, no, uh, it's not, Spurgeon. Thank you, Spurgeon. So we were talking about this at dinner the other night, and I thought this is, this is so beautifully worded, but I want you to learn to pick up on the, the, the catchphrases, the key words that show that in fact, Calvinists teach you are forced to believe. You have no choice. So uh, he writes uh, that this is about the doctrine of effectual calling. You're going to see that come up tonight in some other quotes. The doctrine of effectual calling. In other words, that all whom God calls must and shall come. Quote, unquote. This is Spurgeon's words. However stoutly they may set themselves against it, Yet they shall be brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light. You cannot resist it. Okay. So if you can't resist it, how is that not being forced to do something, right? Uh, and then he goes on, Oh, the power and majesty that rest in the words, will come. And he emphasizes will come. He does not say that they have power to come, nor that they may come if they will, but they will 
come. And then uh, and he makes this curious comment. He says, as an example, I may exercise power over another man's will, and yet that other man's will may be perfectly free. I mean, I would love if he were alive to talk to him and say, can you clarify that further? Because if I'm exercising power over someone else's will, read force. <laughs> I mean, that's what the definition of force is. I'm forcing them to do something. How can it then be said they have free will? Free will means you can do what you want. You know, if, if a prisoner is locked in handcuffs and forced into the back of the squad car, does he really have free will? What if he says, I want to leave? Can he leave? No. <laughs> He's forced into the car, right? Um, and so then, again, notice the way that you know, Spurgeon and Calvinists do this a lot. Really try to define it and describe it in ways that sound more uh, diplomatic than God forces you to be saved. But really, that's what they're saying. He says, by the mysterious influence of his Holy Spirit operating upon all the powers and passions of the soul to subdue the whole man. I mean, again, God's, if God subdues you so that you have no choice and you will and must come to faith, how is that not being forced? Anybody want to comment on that or reflect on that? Is it making sense? So I'm just saying that, you know, we, we need to say, here's what they're saying, and then I'm just characterizing it fairly. So they definitely believe irresistible grace, as we shall see, means you're forced to believe you could not not believe no matter in fact that's what Spurgeon said here um, you know however stoutly you may set yourself against it you will and must believe yeah yes amen I like where this is going <laughs> Well, you could resist it, right? Okay, but there's no, so if, there's if, no force in that irresistible Correct. Because in the, so the analogy is if I see an ice cream sundae and I'm enticed by it and I really want it and I know I really shouldn't eat it, but against my better judgment I eat it, uh, you know, is, is that, I'm, I'm, your analogy is I'm forced, I'm not forced. You're not being forced, right, but you're also not being compelled either. Now, if I took an ice cream sundae and shoved it down your throat, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably a better analogy. So the analogy breaks down because in that scenario, in fact, that's a perfect scenario for what we believe the Bible teaches about the spirit's spirit's call. Spirit, and we're going to get to that in a moment. That the spirit definitely calls people, no question. But you have a choice. You can resist it, and even though. In that situation that you described, it might have been very difficult. Nobody, no external force forced you to eat that Sunday. Right? But if if someone literally tied you up and crammed it down your throat, that's truly, you have no choice. And the language that they use, as you shall see, is that you will be compelled, uh, uh, you know, to do it. You, you, you couldn't not do it. I mean, even, even your stoutest, re, you know, rejection or whatever, you won't be able to... 
resist it. It's, it's absolutely will happen. Uh, you cannot resist. That's what they call it. This is the from the Synod of Dort, their doc, fourth point in their doctrine, irresistible. That ice cream, no matter how enticing, is resistible, right? Barely. Maybe barely, sure. But it is resistible. So one more comment, which I thought was interesting um, from my new friend uh, online. He said, Calvinists preach the gospel to everybody. And then he comments, but not the way Paul did. <laughs> He's right um, about what gospel they preach when they preach it. Um, I would disagree. I would say not all Calvinists do. He's right. There are some Calvinists that are evangelists, and I've mentioned that many times. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a uh, oxymoron to me. Why would they do that? But they do. There are some that do it. But most don't. So he, he goes on. So in praxis, or practicality, being a Calvinist does not hinder evangelism. I would say, but in reality and in consistency, it does. If your viewpoint is that only the elect will be saved and that all of the elect will involuntarily and irresistibly respond in faith, then, you know, what's the point, right? And that's why some extreme Calvinists or hyper-Calvinists, as you sometimes hear them called, don't preach the gospel. And I've given several anecdotes already through this series. I won't repeat them, but people that I know that I've talked with that, uh, you know, make that, a point. I think you guys were mentioning something at dinner tonight about, uh, you know, in a youth group or a meeting, where they were saying, you know, not don't don't waste your time on those that are not elect or something like that. Yeah. So I mean, it does it it does come up. So it's, I certainly don't mean, nor have I said, in fact, I've said just the opposite. But I don't mean to imply that all Calvinists don't believe in evangelism. I'm just saying if they take their system to its logical conclusion, why would they? Uh, but some do. Some are very uh, effective in evangelism, but, but some aren't. So the, the emailer from his experience was saying, oh, all the Calvinists I know are evangelists. Well, that may be true, and, and I'm glad that they are, except for the fact that they're preaching a false gospel most of the time, which we'll get to that in the next uh, couple of weeks. So that's the definition of irresistible grace. Now, lest I be accused of putting words in their mouth, let's kind of look at some quotes. R.C. Sproul said, irresistible grace refers to a call of God that by his sovereign power and authority brings about his designed and ordained effect or result. In other words, it can't not bring it about. Okay? Wayne Grudem says irresistible grace refers to a kind of summons from the king of the universe, and it has such power, that's twice now we've seen the word power, that it brings about the response that it asks for in people's hearts. It is an act of God that guarantees a response. You see the, the difference there? It's one thing for the Spirit of God to call and, and, and you know, uh, urge and convict and do all the things that the Bible says the Spirit of God does. It's another thing to say that it guarantees that you will respond. Because then that eliminates man's free will. So we believe as we've been talking about in the previous weeks, that an individual can believe the gospel or reject the gospel, and that only those who believe the gospel will be saved, and that you have to receive the gift. A gift forced upon someone is no gift at all. It's freely offered and it must be freely received. So now you've seen Sproul, who says that God's power and authority makes sure that what he wanted to happen will happen. Grudem, once again, says it's, it's a summons with the power that it will absolutely guarantee the response that God wants. 
MacArthur says, because of human depravity, there is nothing in a fallen reprobate sinner that is capable of responding in faith. Well, if you're incapable of responding, then obviously it's not of your own choosing, right? I mean, that, that's what we've been taught. That's what, that goes back to total depravity. Um, MacArthur says, Irresistible grace includes the means of receiving the gift of salvation as well as the gift itself. Sovereign election will result in what God determines. All whom the Father calls to himself will come. Or Packer, the Holy Spirit draws us invincibly to Christ. So it's not just a drawing where you, whereby you feel you come under conviction of your sins and you realize you need a Savior. And so you say, am I going to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sin or am I going to resist and reject him? It's invincible. If you're one of the chosen, one of the lucky ones, you're going to be dragged in to the family of God. And again, they all go back to the, their definition of dead, which means unable to believe. Since we were dead in sin and unable to trust Christ, faith, indeed all Christian virtue, is entirely a gift of God. You see their point? Is it, are you getting a clear understanding of what they mean by irresistible grace? Any questions about that? Do you agree that we have no choice? That if God is going to, if we're going to get saved, we're going to be forced to believe? Yeah. Okay. Sure, the circumstances, yeah. And I see some of these words that they use and that kind of stuff, and I know I felt like I couldn't resist the call at the moment of my salvation. I was on, literally, physically on my knees. Okay, so fair enough. Um, the comment is this: a lot of this sounds like semantics. So um, I disagree. I mean, words mean things. So are you saying that you had no choice in the matter? No. That's not okay. Well, that's what they're saying. No, no, I'm not arguing. I'm just saying this is an important. This is an important issue. This is not semantics at all. I mean. People have written volumes of book trying to settle this debate about the fourth point of Calvinism. It's, it's, and maybe I'm not explaining it well, but they believe you cannot resist God's grace. Period. You do not have a choice. But if they accept the Lord, the Calvinists, wherever they are, right. if they accept the Lord, is their Lord and Savior, they're saved. If, but they don't have a choice. See, you accept it. You may have felt the incredible convicting work of the Holy Spirit, but you just told me you could have rejected it, right? Yeah. 
and you'll be in heaven. You'll be sitting with Calvinists in heaven. But that's not, as we talked about the last two weeks, what they think gets you in heaven. They don't say you go to heaven if you believe. You go to heaven because you're regenerated and elect. Faith is an involuntary secondary issue. Faith is not what saves you. That's the second point. Unconditional. They do not believe you have to believe to go to heaven. You believe because you're going to heaven. See the difference? So that, I mean, again, I, I mean, I don't know how much clearer I can make it, but uh, absolutely Calvinism teaches irresistible grace. Yeah, you had a comment. Yeah. yeah. But once you get to that point where, oh, I believe because God's saying I can, I have to believe. Yeah. But if you believe, you're in. Sure, yeah. Okay, yeah. John Carter is probably in heaven. Well, we, we don't really know who's in heaven, but I would assume that you know, he's probably saved. Talking about John MacArthur, for those who couldn't hear. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no reason to not believe that. He studied the Word of God. But again, if, I mean, I'm, I can't uh, obviously crawl inside your mind and, you know, help you see the seriousness of the issue. But I'm just here to tell you, having studied this for 34 years, it's a serious issue if you think you don't have a choice whether to believe or not. Calvinists would readily agree, Gary, that if you those who believe that proves they're elect and they're in heaven. That's beside the point. What's, what's the point is, is what's the instrumental cause of eternal life? What precisely must happen for me to have eternal life? And if I think it's nothing within my control, I'm either in or out, lucky me, you know, and that what a Calvinist would say what happened to you was just the efficacious result of God's will. You had nothing to do with it. In which case, and they praise God for it, like the Spurgeon article we read. They, they give God glory for it. Someone last week asked about, you know, how, you know, maybe it was after the, after the session, but how can, you know, how, how can Calvinists, you know, praise God for his goodness if they feel like, you know, they're just one of the elect ones? Isn't that going to be prideful? And I commented, no, they have just as much reason to praise God, too, because... In their mind, they're one of the they're part of the club, and they thank God for it. It's better than being in the other category, right? Whereas we say, no, we thank God for His free gift. There's a difference. It's a gift, not something that we just you know blindly hope and pray. And if we're in the club, great, and, and praise God for it. That's that's their view. So someone else had a hand. Yeah, I'm, I'm really struggling because I can see both sides of this. Okay, and um, but I. Go back to the place in the Bible where Jesus, I think it's in John, where he says, um, nobody will come to me. All that the Father give me, I will accept. Mm -hmm. and, 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 um, but nobody comes to the Father unless he is drawn. Right. And I'm really, I'm really uh, struggling. Well, let's take, we're going to take a look at that. That's John 6, 44. I'm going to spend some time on that tonight. But one other, I thought there was another hand, no? Brianna. Oh, Brianna, yeah. Right, so that was what I was about to say. They don't have a free choice. Exactly, that was what I was about to say, going back to Ken's comment. Yeah. That's all well and good for you because the Spirit of God convicted you, you responded. In my view, theologically, and based on what the Bible says, you responded in faith to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit as he was drawing you, which we're going to get to in a second. And praise God, you're part of the family of God. In that instant, when faith met the gospel, you became born again. 
But Calvinists teach, unless you were elect and God forced that to happen, it would never have happened. So what do you do with the rest of the people? And that's why in our first seven sessions, we've made a big deal about how I believe the Bible teaches whosoever will may come. That means 7.5 billion people on earth could be saved if they would believe the gospel. Calvinists emphatically deny that. Emphatically. So they keep them out of their church? Uh, in some cases, they declare them on. Uh, elect because of their behavior and because they resist the gospel in their mind one too many times that they must not be elect so absolutely um, so I mean if and, and again I've dealt with Calvinists for many many years and I have a great respect for them so if you are here and you align yourself with Calvinism praise God that's between you and the Lord to work out I'm not here to convince you of anything I'm just here to lay out the issues um, and uh, but absolutely they teach that Jesus didn't even die for the whole world Right? Do you think Jesus died for the whole world? The sins of the whole world? We talked about that last week. I know you guys were sick. What's that? Yes, he did. I mean, that should be an easy one, right, Ken? He died for the sins of the whole world? Okay. Well, they don't think he did. He only died for the elect. That's the limited atonement. Did they say potentially he died? No, they wouldn't even say potentially. We were You were, you were here last week. We, no, I, I thought you were here. Um, anyway, yeah, go back and watch it. We They emphatically deny. That's the whole crux of the matter and that's what I said most people who call themselves four-point Calvinists it's that limited atonement that they deny right that they 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 obviously it's so clear in scripture first John 2 2 Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins not for ours only but the sins of the whole world but and we looked at how they are all over the map and how they try to define that they're not consistent uh, yes here and then back here Yes. Yes. Right. Yes, they do. And I've had arguments with them about that. That if you know, if a, a baby dies in in infancy or in the womb, if they're elect, they go to heaven. If they're not, they're not. Because your faith isn't the determining factor. Your salvation is unconditional. There are no conditions whatsoever that you must meet if you're going to go to heaven. You're either in or you're out. God does it all. And so that's a problem. And these are serious issues. Uh, you know, that we have. So someone else uh, had a hand back here. Yeah. So I don't, I'm just going to give an opinion as all it is. But it appears to me that this is like everything else that man touches. This is being politicized. Grace, faith, salvation are three gifts. If you take the words up there from Packer, the Holy Spirit draws us invincibly to Christ. Well, how about if we replace that word with convincing? Absolutely. Because that way it means you have you have choice. And it's like everything else in this world that man touches, they politicize it. We can get into that in discussion. But the point is salvation is a gift. Absolutely. Yeah. So the comment is salvation is a gift. And if you were to replace the words that you see on the screen right now, if you replace the word invincibly with convincibly, that's no problem. But invincible and convincible are completely different words. They're not semantically the same thing, right? That's the point you so, about it's semantics. No. That's, that's playing this wordsmith in whatever. I have a lot of respect for that. You know, we read his book for, for our home church book club. Yeah. It, it, was a, it was a really good book. But 
No, semantics by definition, not to split hairs, but semantics by definition means you're talking past each other, you're saying the same thing Correct. using different words. Yeah, well, These two words are exact opposites. They're not synonyms. Absolutely. Calvinists twist something that is good and holy, which is man's free will. Yeah. Correct. In the garden. Right. Yeah. And that's why we talked about, so the comment is free will is the first thing that came in to play in the garden, and where does it come in? So that's why we talked about in previous sessions in Romans 5, in Adam, all sinned, all chose to eat the apple. Not just the non-elect. We all chose. And in Christ, all can be saved, right? So Christ didn't just die for the elect. He died for the whole world. So the key words here are irresistible, invincibly, guarantees, power that will bring about the ordained effect, results that will be in accord with what God determines, and compels. So... I want to look at what the Bible says first, then I want to go to John 6, uh, 44. So a verse that I've quoted often is from Matthew 23, 37, and I'm simply demonstrating that, you know, people do have the ability to resist the will of God, right? Which Calvinists deny. And here you have Jesus saying to the Jewish leaders uh, on, you know, as he was rebuking them and right before he gave the Olivet Discourse, that how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Well, did he mean that? Or, or not? I mean, I believe he meant it. That he wanted one thing and they did another. Uh, and very plainly in John 5, uh, 39 and 40, he says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Okay. Or uh, Agrippa, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. See, again and again, you know, we see this contrast between man's decision to believe and God's desire that all believe. God's not willing that any should perish. Well, if God's will, you know, is that not any should perish, how come some people go to hell? Anybody have an answer for that? Absolutely, because they don't choose of their own accord the gift. Or as... Uh, Stephen said in his speech that led to his martyrdom to the unbelievers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Right? So the bottom line here, and again, this is why I, I chafe at, at, at dismissing this all as semantics, is that love always works persuasively but not coercively. There's a difference between being enticed by a Sunday and having that Sunday forced down your throat with your hands tied behind your back. Those are two different things. Okay? We may describe, semantics would be if we describe in different ways the urgency or the compulsion or the, uh, you know, the enticement, you know, like a, a Sunday might entice me differently than you or a certain flavor of Sunday might. And so we might talk past each other in a matter of degree, but these are absolute contrasts, right? Love always works persuasively, never coercively. God does not force someone to love him. Forced love is no love at all. It's hate, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, how can a free choice be forced? That's really the question. How can a free choice be forced? It can't. Free choice and compulsion are mutually exclusive. 
Paul said we are justified freely by his grace. Freely. Um, Paul stated that God is the Savior of all men. We're going to come back to this in a moment. Especially those who believe. In other words, God provided salvation for everyone, but those who believe actually receive it. Um, Earlier in chapter 2, he puts it this way. God desires all men to be saved. So this is what I'm saying. It puts the condition back on you. And we've already, I don't want to rehash it, we've already talked about how receiving a gift is not a work. It's not a work. That's absurd. Nobody would ever, you know, receive a gift and think they had to do something to earn it. Then that's not a gift. It's a wage, right? If you have to earn it, it's a wage. So nobody in any other context would say the receiving of a free gift, fully paid for by someone else, and given to you at no cost, is a work that you're having to earn it. You simply receive it. So God desires all men to be saved, but only those who believe are saved. Um, And again, he gave himself as a ransom for all. The Bible ends with these awesome words. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Now, that doesn't sound like the words of a God who compels only the elect to believe the gospel and forces the non-elect to not believe. They couldn't believe if they wanted to, right? God's offer to come and take the water of life freely, is a, it's a bona fide offer. He really meant it. Uh, so now, Paul brought up John six forty four. This is, I think, you know, going to be very clear, uh, I hope anyway. But uh, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, Calvinists... This is one of their linchpin verses, and they insist that it proves that the gospel is irresistible. You cannot resist it. If you're one of the lucky ones, you're going to believe whether you want to or not. Uh, Man is passive, they say, and only believes the gospel because God makes him. So let's look at a few of their quotes first, then I'll come back to this verse. Uh, This is from the MacArthur Study Bible at John 6.44. The drawing here is selective and efficacious. Selective. Notice that. We'll come back to this in a moment. But in other words, he, God's not drawing everybody. He's only drawing a select few. And then MacArthur defines for us, this is his parenthesis, what he means by efficacious, in case you didn't know, and that is producing the desired effect upon those whom God has sovereignly chosen for salvation. Um, he goes on, God irresistibly efficaciously draws to Christ only those whom he chose for salvation in eternity past. So as Brianna said, what about those who aren't elect? <laughs> I mean, we've all trusted Christ, I take for granted or assume. Uh, I can't speak for people watching online, but uh, you know, I know in this room we would all testify we've placed our faith in Christ. So praise God, we're going to heaven. But the reason this matters is because those, some haven't. And Calvinists teach that not everyone can. Only the ones who God picks can. MacArthur said, Scripture indicates that no free will exists in man's nature, for man is enslaved to sin and unable to believe, apart from God's empowerment. He goes on, the the divine drawing activity which Jesus referred to cannot mean that somehow the power to come to Christ is allegedly dispensed to all mankind, thus enabling everyone to accept or reject the gospel according to their own will. Well, that's exactly what it means. 
And if that doesn't trouble you deeply, then uh, I I'm, I'm, don't know what to say. Piper puts it this way on John 6, 44. John does indeed intend for the drawing to be understood as decisive in begetting faith. You didn't believe God gave you the faith. He, it, was God, it was born out of God. He gave it to you. Or Packer, total depravity entails total inability. That is the state of not having it in oneself to respond to God and his word in a sincere and wholehearted way. And then he cites John 6.44. That's why this came up when I was searching. I did a lot of this this afternoon. Um, which is, if I sound emotional, it's because this is fresh. I mean, this every time I study this stuff, it, it just troubles me to the core, what they're saying. And it should trouble all of us, right? Uh, you don't have it within yourself to believe the gospel. So just cross your fingers, you know. Hope for the best. Because if you're elect then you'll believe whether you want to or not. And if you're not elect, you couldn't believe even if you wanted to. Or R.C. Sproul. This is, I know this is a longer quote, but it, it comes out pretty good on the screen. What is meant by this drawing? Again, this is on John 6:44. I have often heard it explained that for a person to come to Christ, God the Holy Spirit must first woo or entice them to come. We have the ability, however, to resist this wooing and refuse the enticement. Though this wooing is a necessary condition for coming to Christ, uh, it is not compelling. The wooing does not guarantee that we will come to Christ. That's exactly what I believe the Bible teaches. And then he says, I am persuaded that this explanation is incorrect. Because for him, it's not a wooing or a calling. It's a compulsion. It's a dragging. In fact, uh, here R.C. Sproul uh, actually makes a, makes a mistake, which I'm surprised at because he's, well, he makes a mistake, and he says the Greek word used in John 6.44 is elko. It's actually not elko. It's elkuo, totally different word, similar root, but different words and different lexical entries. Just because etymologically they come from the same word doesn't mean they're the same word. Uh, and he, sa he goes to Kittle's dictionary, and he says it means to compel by irresistible superiority. Linguistically, the word means simply to compel. And he goes on to cite a couple of passages where that, same, that actual same word is used. But let's go back to John 6, 44. What is the word draw? It, it definitely is not a technical term that means drag or compel. It's the word elkuo. In fact, in BDAG, the standard most respected Greek dictionary for biblical and non-biblical Greek, and used in secular universities as well, the entry is to draw or attract. Now, it can mean drag, but context always has to determine meaning. I'm going to look at some of those, but here's the same word, to draw. Uh, this is uh, after Christ's resurrection. Remember when he was uh, having breakfast with the disciples, and he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw. Okay. So, Apparently, it can be resisted, and it's not a compulsion. Uh, but a couple of times, it does obviously mean drag, but context has to determine meaning. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land. Obviously, in this case, he had to physically take hold of it with his hands, and the only way you can do that is to drag. So they translate el kuo drag. It makes sense in the context. Um, same thing in Acts 16, 19, when they seized Paul and Silas, physically grasping hold of them and dragging them into the marketplace. 
But what does it mean in John 6.44? Nothing in John 6.44 indicates drag. And in fact, the same exact word is used by our Lord in John 12.32 when he says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, if draw means irresistibly drag, then how come everybody's not saved, Paul, right? Okay. Congratulations. All right. Once a person is drawn, wooed, whatever, however you want, not dragged, wooed, given the ability, um, what logical thinking person would choose to reject? Paradise, everlasting life, perfect body, I don't get it. Well, read my book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell. There's ten chapters in there on why people reject the gospel. But they do. They do. And by the way, God doesn't give you the ability to respond. You have the ability inherent within you. Either you're going to respond or not. I mean, he makes you a new creation. After you believe, he makes you a new creation. Yeah. Once you have faith, then you are a new creation. Correct. They teach, that's not what Calvinists teach. Right. Calvinists they teach, teach God saves you, and then involuntarily, in, in, invincibly, under compulsion, you're dragged, kicking and screaming to faith whether you want to or not. We believe that you have the choice. So the compulsion, all of that, that's no problem. Draw. I mean, help me understand, if draw means, you know, what did, what did Sproul say? Uh, if it means uh, compel irresistibly with superiority, and that's his comment on John 6:44, even though he uses the wrong word, then how come everybody's not saved? It's the same exact word. Yeah, because because free will comes into it. Man's choice enters in at some point to choose the gospel, to choose Christ, Correct, but that's not what they say. What, what they this is a real problem for them, and what they say, kind of like we looked at with First John two two and John three sixteen and all these other places where they use world. Remember that the last couple of weeks, and they redefine it. World of the elect. They say all men means some men. That's what they say here. They have to say that because their contention is that John six forty four teaches that. Uh, only those whom the Lord drags, their word, that's the way they translate it, drags and compels to come, and they have no choice in the matter, will be saved. And so then when Jesus uses the same word a little bit later and says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Well, they know they're not universalists. They know that not everybody's saved. So again, forcing their theology on the text, they say, well, all men must mean some men or all of the elect, right? So they play word games but you know look at what jesus said in john 2 jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men now does jesus know the thoughts of some men or all men all means all i mean i hate to sound uh silly uh, but all means all and so god is god the holy spirit is drawing all men to christ but the determining factor of whether you go to heaven or not is whether you believe it. If I offer you a gift 
It's not yours until you take it. And you have a choice. That, that's what the Bible teaches. But that's not what Calvinism teaches. Yes? <laughs> I don't necessarily understand the importance of knowing this when we believe rightly that you are only saved by faith through grace. I I don't know what I should be taking away so that I can be a better disciple and witness to you. So why does this matter? All right, well, we start out in session one talking about why it matters. As a church, we're supposed to mark those, uh, Romans 16, who teach doctrine contrary to the truth and avoid them and, and sound the alarm. So teaching doctrine isn't just teaching correct doctrine. It's also exposing false doctrine. And especially in these latter days, as false doctrine and apostasy is on the rise, we need to let people know what this false teaching is. This isn't just about how crunchy the communion bread is or how often you take communion. This is the essence of how you get saved. And Calvinism teaches a different method of salvation. But if we understand the proper correct mm-hmm. method of salvation, and that is how we disciple and evangelize to those that are in our sphere of influence. Correct. Then why, what else does this give me because, as I said, the Bible commands us to teach and expose false doctrine. That's the purpose of the church. So, I mean, look at look at Romans 16. I mean, I just quoted it, but maybe it'll be uh, more clear if we actually read it. Romans 16, um, verse 17. I urge you, brethren, to note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. So that's what we're doing. We're fulfilling this command of Paul to note. And there are many other passages that talk about being aware of false teachers and exposing false teachers and so forth. So on an issue as critical as the gospel, uh, we want to get it right. And so the fact that we get it right doesn't mean we should ignore all the false teaching out there. We, I'm hopefully exposing to some people who've never thought about it. Now they're going to realize, you know what? Calvinists, you know, are wrong. And I don't want to read their writings and follow their teaching and join their churches, right? And you can say that about Mormons. Absolutely. So there's a variety of cults. Absolutely. Yeah, Mormons, all of them. Yeah, and we should teach on all of them. I have taught on all of them. Yeah, we should expose false teaching. Beware of false teachers among you, and, and that's what we're doing. So that's why it matters. It's because of the very heart of the gospel is at stake. Yeah, Ken. Are we supposed to pick a fight? Are we supposed to just have this knowledge? 
Well, so the question is, are we supposed to pick a fight? I, I don't think I've said that ever. But let's look at what 1 Timothy 6.20 says. In the very last words to Timothy, Paul says, guard what's been committed to your trust. That's what we're doing. We're guarding the gospel. So um, it does matter. Calvinism is an incredibly influential teaching today. It's capturing the minds of our young people. It is a false gospel. This isn't just how many angels can dance on the head of the pins. This cuts right to the heart of what precisely must I do to go to heaven. And, and it matters. So I think exposing it and teaching about it uh, are critical. And you know, as the Spirit of God puts it on your heart to, to talk about it with others, he'll do it. You may never talk about it. I don't know. It depends on your journey and where the Lord takes you and who you come in contact with. But to ignore it would be to violate a whole host of scriptures. I mean, if we're supposed to call out false doctrine, is there any doctrine more important than the doctrine of salvation in scripture? I mean, I don't, even though I'm passionate about dispensational pre-tribulation theology, you, you hopefully you know me well enough to know I don't pick a fight with mid-tribbers or post-tribbers or amillennialists, right? I'm not out exposing them but i have a whole series and a whole book on this because this is the gospel this is what matters most and this is what you know at least i've dedicated my life to for 32 years is the clarity accuracy and urgency of the gospel and when the gospel is wrong we need to to, to proclaim it and um you know it's a, it's not that complicated either you have a choice to believe or reject the gospel or it's irresistible if you think it's irresistible that's fine you're a calvinist own it. If you don't think it's irresistible, if you think it can be resisted, then okay, let's see why. Let's see what the Bible says. Um, but, you know, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Again, all does not mean some. So if you go back to John 6, 44, Helkuo here means to attract or to call. It's a big difference between forcing and compelling versus attracting or calling. I can call you all day, but you have to answer, right? You know? But Calvinists teach that God does the answering as well, and that's that's the that's the rub. Um, I think at one point you said that John Calvin originally taught these points differently, and they have evolved now into more of a heresy. Yes. So we John Calvin, the question is, you know, have I commented that John Calvin, you know, didn't believe some of these? Yeah, we've noted throughout the seven or I don't know if this is number seven or eight, how many ever sessions I've given a few times where I've quoted Calvin in contradistinction to what Calvinists teach today. But, you know, he was in a different era and he, you know, he I'm sure if you look over my 32 years of writings, there's going to be some things that contradict or that I've changed on or was unclear on it earlier. So yeah, he, he definitely would have not accepted the entire system the way it is taught today. Um, but, you know, Beza, which was his student that crystallized it at the Synod of Dort in the 1500s, you know, he, he was pretty well acquainted with Calvin's views. And so um, I wouldn't, I only like to point that out just because when we do find a quote of Calvin that is contrary to Calvinists, it's it's kind of funny. You know, it's kind of, you know, 
And so I'm not suggesting that they have, you know, sometimes people say John Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. I don't know if I'd go that far, you know, but he definitely had some differences for sure. Yeah. No. So, and that's the, that's the quote, I don't have it this week, but that I gave last week. Is there any question, is, is there any place in the Bible where it says you have to be elect to be saved? No. Uh, election is always used in Scripture to determine those who've already believed the gospel. But Ephesians 1 and other passages that I've talked about definitely teach election, but that goes back to that biblical antinomy. Remember, election isn't the issue. The issue is free will. And, and I know those two are not reconcilable from man's wisdom and logic, but the Bible definitely teaches them. So my point is that once again you have man taking something and twisting it in his own view versus the inspired word of God, which is truth. Correct. And that's that's the point I, I understand that you're making. Yeah, it's man's as far as what they've done to, to their own interpretation of the Bible. Yeah they're Sure. Well, it, so the comment is they're, you know, they're taking Scripture and twisting it to their own theology. And, but that's true of any false teaching. You know, basically any, and we have to all guard against that. Because if we're not careful, we can take our presuppositions, what we're passionate about, and we can read into the text and try to make it say what we want it to say. We're all guilty of that. I've been guilty of that before. And the, the goal is to be consistent in our literal grammatical historical approach, um, so yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't want to point the finger to one-sidedly because we all anytime you have false doctrine, essentially you're twisting the scriptures, right? That's the definition of false doctrine. So we all have to be careful about that. But the point is, as John Walvoord, one of my mentors, said, no one is ever saved against his will. That's the bottom line. And um, so, you know. I, I really believe we need to remember that free choice and compulsion are mutually exclusive. Calvin's, Calvinists deny that you have a choice in the matter. Again, belief is not something that you choose to do to receive the gift. You're already saved by the time you involuntarily express faith. And if you're elect, you absolutely will, must, all those words we looked at earlier, have faith. If you're not elect, you cannot possibly have faith. It's not possible. So that's the rub. Is 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life on faith alone. And if that's not something you have the ability to do, then that's a real problem in my mind. Yeah. Now, Gary, I think, or no? Yeah. Do Calvinists believe that You know, we talked about that before. Do Calvinists believe the only people that ever had free will were Adam and Eve? Uh, they do have an answer for that. They definitely think Adam and Eve uh, chose, and that's why I always like to bring up Romans 5, because they have to have a shift, a category shift in free will. If, if, if everyone fell because of sin, not just the non-elect, then... The same thing must be true on the opposite side. But somehow, in their mind, Adam and Eve, representing the sum total of humanity, could choose to eat the apple, but then after that, only a certain 
percentage of their progeny from that point on actually has the ability to accept the, the uh, remedy for that predicament. Whereas I believe in Adam all sin and in Christ all can be made well, Romans 5.18. So. Well, is this why they have to adhere to all five points? Absolutely. It's a lockstep. This is why they have to adhere to all five points. So let's go through them again. And, and, and um, we're, we're going to get to Perseverance of the Saints next week. I'm a little surprised. I thought we'd spend more time on Irresistible. Uh, but, but let's go through them, even though we haven't touched on Perseverance. Man is completely incapable of believing the gospel. Point number one. Point number two, there are no conditions that you must meet to go to heaven. None. Point number three, Christ only died for the elect. He did not die for the whole world. Point number four, those for whom he died will, under compulsion, be dragged, their word, into the faith. They don't have a choice. And those that are not elect cannot, no matter how much they want to. And then point number five, in fact, I was going to, that reminds me of one of these quotes, I was going to point something out. But point number five is that because God's the one that did it all, all of the elect, the ones that are truly saved, will persevere in good works. If you're not persevering in good works, then it works backwards, right? That means that God's not doing it. If God's not doing it, God didn't compel you to believe. If you didn't believe, you're not regenerate. If you're not regenerate, you're not saved. So it's, it's just a, a zero-sum game. But one of these quotes, see if I can find it. Uh, it's where he said, all virtues... Maybe it was at the very beginning. It was parenthetical when he said, Faith, indeed, all Christian virtue is a gift of God. Oh, here, maybe it was right here. Yeah, here it is, Packer. Since we are dead in sin and unable to trust Christ, faith, and then notice the parentheses, indeed, all Christian virtue is entirely a gift of God. That's perseverance. That's his view of perseverance, which he goes on to elaborate about. In other words, since God's the one doing the good works in you, if you're not doing good works, you're not of God. See how that works, right? And that's the reason Calvinists will say again and again, if you're in, quote, consistent sin or habitual sin or prolonged sin, they have all these different qualifiers for it, you're not saved. They would never say you lose your salvation. That's full-blown Arminianism. But they would say if you're not doing good works, consistently or conversely if you're consistently sinning then you're not saved you never were saved yeah the comment is how can anyone be saved because every single day we sin well that's where they begin to qualify it like james montgomery boyce for example says well yes christians can fall they just can't fall the whole way what does that mean or christians can sin they just can't sin habitually Correct. If you have pride every day. Yeah, or other invisible sins. Lust, jealousy, pride, covetousness, anger, right? A lot of those are internal. A lot, they can be external, of course, anger especially, but it, they're also internal. And so Calvinists are quite comfortable looking in the mirror and saying, since I'm not committing any of the biggies, I'm still comfortable 
declaring myself elect and saved. But if I were to commit any of the biggies, sexual sins or, you know, then, ah, boy, God would never do that. It's just, it's ludicrous. Yeah, yeah, it really is a under, un, undergirding it all is pride. All right, so next time then we will dedicate it to perseverance of the saints. And this is, again, this gets into even more of why it matters because when you share the gospel as a Calvinist, you are front-loading it with all of these promises to persevere because they know, according to their theology, if you don't persevere, you're not going to heaven. So they front-load it with commitment, uh, surrender, uh, forsaking sin, pledging, promising, all of these things, which the Bible does not say. It's simply faith alone. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the comment is one reason that it matters is that if you're not aware of the dangers of this false teaching on the gospel, then you might, you know, go to a church or be involved in a church and and it's going to end up indoctrinating your kids and others over time. And that that's a problem. That's a real problem. I mean, one of the emails I got last week was someone who talked about, you know, how they were... Um, I forget the exact comment, but essentially they had gone to this church because there was no other church in their area that was teaching verse by verse. And so they knew that they, they the pastors had come from a Calvinist seminary and they were concerned about it, but they thought, well, maybe it won't come through. Well, they got in, they got plugged in, and even though the adults were able to eat the meat and spit out the bones, it, the, the kids and the college student were not able to. And consequently, now they're completely full, full, fully immersed in Calvinistic teaching. So, um, I mean, I think as Judy commented, just as we would sound the alarm about, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or others, we need to sound the alarm about any false teaching. And uh, we don't want people to, and, and the, these are the most subtle kinds, too. The, 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 and it's really infiltrating uh, uh you know, evangelicalism at large, uh, major denominations have have completely gone Calvinistic now, otherwise conservative. Uh, so I, I would just challenge you to think about the amazing nature of God's grace and think about, you know, 
how we are supposed to guard what's been committed to our trust and that we're supposed to be champions of grace. And it's not grace, a free gift, if God forces you to accept it. That's not grace. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, let me interject before you go on because I want to just for the people listening. So that last comment's very important. Is how would you how would you comfort someone who's lost a baby, you know, with a miscarriage or something? They absolutely wouldn't. In the same way that Calvinists would never say to someone, "God loves you." and sent his son to die for you. They would never use that phrase because they don't believe it. They don't know if God loved that person and sent his son to die for him because they don't know if they're elect. Right, so they would, in evangelism, they would just say it differently. They would say something like, you know, have you trusted Christ? Or, you know, Jesus uh, is your only hope. Or, but they would never say he died for you because they don't know. In the same way, they would never tell a woman who lost a baby or a young child, you'll see them again. And I've talked to them ad nauseum about this, and I admire their consistency, at least they're consistent with their uh, theology, um, but they're just wrong. They're just wrong. And so that, that's where it begins to matter. You know, you're looking in the face of someone, you know, who's grieving and wondering if they're going to see their child again. You don't think Calvinism matters? At that point, it certainly matters. And, and, I, didn't, and I interrupted you, so did you have a couple more comments? or? Okay, yeah. The, the, the threshold, which is what? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, it really is. Uh, Judy. Okay, so great comment. You know, she said if, if it would have been helpful if from the get-go we basically announced, hey, we're going to talk about a false teaching now and so forth. Um, the, 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 and I did do that. I mean, I clearly said, why does this matter? Because it's the very nature of salvation is at stake. How you go to hell. I listed five or six things in our very first session yeah. on the slide. So I, I sort of, it was kind of implied. But the, the reason that I take a softer approach is because unlike Jehovah's Witnesses or unlike Mormons, Calvinists, for the most part, and these scholars that I'm quoting, they believe in inerrancy. They believe the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. They claim to be studying the Bible. They are just wrong. They're just misinterpreting it on a critical issue, not a minor issue, but on the most fundamental issue in Scripture. And so 
you know, I, I, I'm hoping that people can, as they go through and see, here's what they say, here's what the Bible says. That's what we've done every time with each of the Here's what they say, here's what the Bible says. And I'm hoping that people, as they hear this and study it on their own, will come to the conclusion that, oh yeah, this is a departure from the Word of God, and it's on a serious subject. And that way I don't have to, you know, because it's so pervasive. Remember, the vast majority of evangelical Christians today are Calvinists, by far. I hope you realize dispensationalists are in the vast minority. So, um, you know, if I were to start out with these guys are all wrong, and we did actually the first uh, session, I think it was Fred, brought up the H word. You remember that? And I actually answered him, I said, Calvinism is heretical, but I stopped short of calling an individual proponent of it a heretic because I don't know. You know, do you, I don't know if you remember that or maybe you guys. So, so we we have you know used some pretty important words and talked about how important it is. But it to me it cuts right to the heart of the gospel. It is about the heart of the gospel, and I think it's it's important. But I mean, this is very instructive for me. Um, you know, in the introduction, perhaps I could have been a little more explicit and less implicit and that would have been helpful all right well um i would say uh we'll dismiss and hopefully you can uh, resist what you can resist this week and if not best of luck to you so all right god bless thank you guys